Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hey, y'all, this is Alex, your host of Liberation Bible Study. For today's episode, I am thrilled to have with me Reverend Shauna Bowman, who is pastor at Friendship Presbyterian Church. Today, we're going to be reading John chapter 18 through chapter 19, verse 42, through the theme of failure. Shauna, welcome to the show. Hey. Shauna, it's our practice on this show to introduce ourselves, our pronouns, our work, and our identities, because we know that these always show up whenever we are engaging with these texts. Shauna, will you share with us a bit more of who you are? Yeah, I would love to. So I'm Shauna Bowman. I use the pronouns uh, she and her and hers. Some of the identities that I um, wrestle with and bring to the table are being queer. I live with my partner, Jenny, in Chicago and our kiddos and um, enjoy that urban environment. And then um, I also think a lot about what it means to be a leader in a faith tradition. So my pastor identity, and then oftentimes in conversation with myself as an artist. So I'm a visual artist. And those two, I think, do a lot of uh, work together in various settings. So at Friendship, where I'm the pastor, and then also at Creation Lab, um, which is an art studio and sort of arts incubator and shared co-working space that I created with some friends here in Chicago. And they, they're more blended of identities than I, I think I first thought that they would be. And so we, you know, sort of fluid in and out. Thank you. And yeah. I am Alex Patton McNeil, and my pronouns are he and him. I serve as the executive director at More Light Presbyterians and am a white transgender man raised in the South and now living back in North Carolina. Some of the identities that wrestle with me, as you were talking, Shauna, this identity of being someone deeply engaged in the work of social justice and transformation, and as Mm -hmm. someone who is white and steeped in a culture of white supremacy in the American South right now, um, really wrestling with how Mm -hmm. to help transform the places around me in a spirit of hospitality and relationship. And in the text we're about to read, I think that there's a lot of relationships at play and dynamics and negotiating those through our identities and, and how we show up in the world is, is really, I think, interesting. And so I'm excited to read this text with you through the theme of failure. It's something that you yeah. and I really got excited talking about a couple of, gosh, months ago even about yeah. telling more public stories of failure. Which is sort of perfect because I... I like failed to mention a piece of my identity that's super relevant to that. So can I go back and do that really quick? Absolutely. So in addition to, you know, queer pastor artist, I also think it's important to lift up that I am a white person um, living in the Northeast side of Chicago and similar, you know, like a, from a geographical perspective, I think I'm like really wrestling with and becoming more and more aware of how place geography within the cities where we live, but also sort of in our upbringing has informed so much of how we see and understand the world and what we don't see. 
um, and don't understand in the world. And I think that to play sort of into the conversation around this text today, too. So, yeah, that just want to add that piece. When you're talking about failure, is there a way to fail in that? <laughs> <laughs> so many options, actually. So many options. <laughs> um, we, there's endless amounts of failure. I'd love to turn us now into our first read through of the text as we listen to be thinking about the context and what's going on in this passage, what sparks our interest or our curiosity as we hear it. Shauna, would you be willing to read through it fully for us? For sure. Here we go. beginning with John chapter 18, verse 1. After Jesus said these things, he went out with his disciples and crossed over to the other side of the Kidron Valley. Jesus and his disciples entered a garden there. Judas, his betrayer, also knew the place because Jesus often gathered there with his disciples. Judas brought a company of soldiers and some guards from the chief priests and Pharisees. They came there carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus knew everything that was to happen to him. And so he went out and asked, who are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And Judas, his betrayer, was standing with them. And when he said, I am, they shrank back and fell to the ground. He asked them again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. If you are looking for me, then let these people go. This was so the word he had spoken might be fulfilled. I didn't lose anyone of those whom you gave me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and stuck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the father has given me? And then the company of soldiers, the commander and the guards from Jewish leaders took Jesus into custody. They bound him and led him first to Aeneas. He was the father-in-law of he was the father-in-law of Caffius, the high priest that year. Caffius was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it was better for one person to die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Because this other disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. However, Peter stood outside near the gate. Then the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, came out and spoke to the woman stationed at the gate, and she brought Peter in. The servant woman stationed at the gate asked Peter, aren't you one of this man's disciples? I'm not, he replied. The servants and the guards had made a fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it warming themselves. Peter joined them there, standing by the fire and warming himself. Meanwhile, the chief priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in temples where all the Jews gather. I've said nothing in private. Why ask me? Ask those who heard what I told them. They know what I said. After Jesus spoke, one of the guards standing there slapped Jesus in the face. Is that how you would answer the high priest? He asked. Jesus replied, if I speak wrongly, testify about what was wrong. But if I speak correctly, why do you strike me? And then Ananias sent him bound to Caphias, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing with the guards, warming himself. And they asked, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter denied it, saying, I'm not. 
a servant of the high priest, a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said to him, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. The Jewish leaders led Jesus from Cassius to the Roman governor's palace. It was early in the morning, so that they could eat the Passover, the Jewish leaders wouldn't enter the palace. Entering the palace would have made them ritually impure. And so Pilate went out to them and asked, What charge do you bring against this man? And they answered, If he had done nothing wrong, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And Pilate responded, Take him yourself and judge him according to your law. And the Jewish leaders replied, The law doesn't allow us to kill anyone. This was so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled when he indicated how he was going to die. Pilate went back into the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own or have others spoken to you about me? And Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, my kingdom doesn't originate from this world. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have to be arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. So you are a king, Pilate said. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. I was born and I came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate asks. After Pilate said this, He returned to the Jewish leaders and said, I find no grounds for any charge against him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And they shouted, not this man, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was an outlaw. And then Pilate had Jesus taken and whipped. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and dressed him in a purple robe. Over and over they went up to him and said, Greetings, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Pilate came out of the palace again and said to the Jewish leaders, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. When the chief priests and their deputies saw him, they shouted out, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate told them, you take him and crucify him. I don't find any grounds for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders replied, we have a law and according to this law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be God's son. When Pilate heard this word, he was even more afraid. He went back into the residence and spoke to Jesus. Where are you from? Jesus didn't answer. So Pilate said, you won't speak to me. Don't you know? that I have authority to release you and also to crucify you? And Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you from above. That's why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And from that moment on, Pilate wanted to release Jesus. However, the Jewish leaders cried out saying, if you release this man, you aren't a friend of the emperor. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes the emperor. And when Pilate heard these words, he led Jesus out and seated him on the judge's bench at the place called the Stone Pavement. It was about noon on the preparation day for Passover, and Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, Here's your king. The Jewish leaders cried out, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate responded, What? Do you want me to crucify your king? And they said, We have no king except the emperor. 
and then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus prisoner. Carrying his cross by himself, he went out to a place called Skull Place. That's where they crucified him and two others with him, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a public notice written and posted on the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And therefore the Jewish chief priest complained to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and his sandals and divided them into four shares, one for each soldier. His shirt was seamless, woven as one piece from top to bottom. And they said to each other, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots to see who will get it. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And that's what the soldiers did. Jesus's mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, And Mary Magdalene stood near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And after this, knowing that everything was already completed, in order to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was nearby, so the soldiers soaked a sponge in it, placed it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. And when he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is completed. Bowing his head, he gave up his life. It was the preparation day, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, especially since that Sabbath was an important day. And so they asked Pilate to have the legs of those crucified broken and the bodies taken down. Therefore, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men who were crucified with Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. However, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. The one who saw this has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he speaks the truth, and he has testified so that you can also believe. These things happen to fulfill the scripture. They won't break any of his bones and another scripture that says they will look at him who they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arathemia asked Pilate if he could take away the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one because he feared the Jewish authorities. Pilate gave him permission, and so he came and took the body away. And Nicodemus, the one who at first had come to Jesus at night, was there too. And he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, nearly 75 pounds in all. Following Jewish burial customs, they took Jesus' body and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths. There was a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish preparation day and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus in it. As you read and heard this passage, how would you describe the context? Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a huge story, right, in terms of how much unfolds in these two chapters. So I've been preaching my way through John's Gospel all of uh, the Lenten season at my church. And 
for some reason, there is a word that keeps coming to me around these stories, which is a tenderness. There's so much intimacy um, in every part of the story, um, even in the midst of issues of power and violence and upheaval. There's all these one-on-one engagements. And so that's something that makes me curious about the way that John's gospel tells this story. And so from a from a context perspective, to me, there's a lot of like relational um, pieces at play first between Jesus and the disciples right before he's arrested. And that he's got these personal relationships with every player, even in the midst of their betrayal, like Judas and and Peter's denial. And then he develops this deeply personal relationship with Pilate over the course of these 24 hours, it feels like. But that's one of the things that strikes me about this text. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting insight that you really pick up on in in reading it all the way through, not just little pieces of of these chapters, how Mm -hmm. intimate everything is. And even in the setting, you're in people's homes. He goes to Pilate's Mm -hmm. home. He goes to the home of the high priest, I believe. They're in a home right before Jesus is arrested. They're, They're having Passover and then they go out into Mm -hmm. a garden. And even the imagery of the garden, I thought was really interesting. It shows up two times in Mm -hmm. the text at the beginning of chapter 18, at the end of chapter 19, where the tomb is, in terms of referencing Genesis and Adam and Eve origin in a garden. I think there's a lot of symbolism there and intimacy with the land, Mm -hmm. the creatures around you, which to me also emphasizes through those relationships, what I noticed in the text, all the choice points people have. And in thinking about failure through those texts, I think it's through those individual choice points where failure can be so deeply experienced. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And that I like that you call them choice points, um, because I think one of the things that we struggle with around these biblical stories is how much choice we ascribe to characters. And especially in John's gospel, where you have all that parenthetical commentary, because he's, you know, being a theologian, right? So helping us understand everything through, you know, the writer's perspective. But I always struggle with those, all those shout outs that are like, and that happened to fulfill this. And that happened to make sure that we all understand that it was, you know, preordained. But I as you were saying that, I realized like it's, it doesn't, it's not always part of the story. And it's, and it's interesting to me because it's like the writer of John's gospel's way of helping work it all out. And I sometimes want to push back on that and say, but like, well, wait, what if, you know, right before the arrest, Jesus like sends Judas out. He's like, I know what you're up to, you know, you might as well get moving. Um, But does that mean Judas had to do it? You know? And so I think that those are questions that I have throughout the story. And I think especially when it comes to Pilate, clearly Pilate is wrestling with what he should do and understands both the way that his power has enabled him to make some decisions and also how trapped he is in this situation. Yeah. I think that in a lot of the lead up to these moments, Jesus himself has said, well, this is going to happen and then that's going to happen and here's how it's going to play out. And even in the very first verses of chapter 18, Jesus decides to go out into the garden because he knows 
these events are already in motion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we as humans wrestle with in our own life of things feeling like they're playing out according to a certain course and yet having choice within those little moments. I mean, I think of Peter denying Jesus three times as being Jesus's disciple, which had been foretold supposedly. But I think what's interesting is we're reading also a text that is making meaning out of these events. So John is very clear saying this is, this is to make this, like make sure that this was foretold and this was fulfilling that prophecy to look at different choice moments that were deeply important over the course of our life and almost say, well, this had to have happened because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Or I think too, I mean, and I, I love that John's gospel does that, but it just, I think it's like such a great voice to sort of wrestle with and then say like, is that really why we think that happened? But I, in thinking about Peter, one of the things that, um, you know, I, man, I love Peter. I feel like he's like, um, the one that like ha- gets to carry the work of failure often um, in the in the biblical story, and yet he just is like doesn't quit, right? Like just keeps, you know, giving it another shot or coming back again. And one of the things that I found really poignant about this when reading it all the way through is realizing that like Peter, we don't see Peter again. Like Peter's not named again after he denies Jesus three times. And that Jesus just told him, Jesus, like, not even what feels like five minutes ago was like, you are not going to be able to stick this out. And Peter's like, I'm absolutely certain I am. And then, you know, within the evening, not only is he not able to publicly claim Jesus, he doesn't even realize he's doing it until like that third time, you know, and it's almost like the cock crowing was like, this moment of realization and then he disappears for the whole rest of the story of the end of Jesus's life. Um, And it sort of leaves you hanging about what happens to Peter. I feel like I really resonate with that in terms of those moments where I'm like so sure that I'm going to not only know the right thing to do, which is probably not cutting off someone's ear, but then I'm also going to be able to do the right thing. And then it's only afterwards that I look back and see like the ways that I failed utterly to do the right thing. Well, it's interesting because Peter was told he was going to fail. Right. Does that happen in John also that you will deny me three yeah. times? Hot crows. Like yeah. right. Yeah. Right before this, like right before the garden scene, um, it happens in conjunction with Judas, like heading out. Which is so, on the one hand, if you're assured that you're going to fail, that then takes some of the burden and pressure and shame off of you when you do. Why does he disappear? I don't think Jesus was saying, you're going to deny me three times and therefore you should never come back. Yeah. He was almost stating it as a fact rather than a, a normative judgment about it. Yeah, I don't think Jesus means it that way, but I guess I've like often read it as that Peter feels pretty ashamed and it's almost as much about the denial as the like realization that I, that it was, Jesus gave me a heads up and it wasn't enough. I think about how often that happens to us, right? Like we know something to be true intellectually, 
but we just can't take it in or we don't completely understand it or we un- we are warned of the possibility but we don't see it as it's unfolding like i just wonder what what was happening for peter in those moments that crowded out his own self-awareness like oh this is it i'm doing the thing that jesus said i would do and it seems like his own fear right for his own safety he could easily have been arrested as well and so that sense of deep fear sort of crowded out his ability to realize what he was doing was is sort of my interpretation of that. And I think deep fear motivates so many of these choices, whether preordained according to a plan or on the spot. I mean, Pilate is wrestling with how to deal with this person who's been dumped in his house by these Jewish authorities, has a conversation with him and doesn't want to convict him and then it's as soon as the leaders are saying well he's he's tried to supersede the authority of the empire so clearly that's a punishable offense you see that fear come forward i mean he was afraid of this thing that he had been kind of like whirled up in like how in the world did i get involved with this and that fear means that he's afraid to be punished for letting Jesus go, maybe by the mob that's outside or the people that are outside or his bosses, the superiors. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Pilate is super screwed in this story. Like he's been made the person responsible for keeping order in this region, right? For like, he's basically the representation of the Roman occupation to this community. And so it, his fear feels like it's sort of coming from all sides in this text. And he really seems to, like, again, with that intimate relational piece, on some level, there are moments in the story where it feels like Pilate's really wrestling with the reality of who Jesus is, that that he suspects, in fact, that Jesus might be who he says he is, and that there's real fear. And, you know, what does it mean that I'm standing face to face with the Son of God? And yet the fear of the principalities and the power of the Roman Empire and of the crowd growing outside and the threat sort of if you let this person off the hook, then you are in fact the one betraying the empire. It wins like for Pilate, like holding on to his power and his place in that system ends up winning out, even though you get this sense that he glimpses the truth in that moment. Which points to me about how difficult it is for one person to change an outcome when a system is at work. I think there are choice points that Pilate could have made. He could have done different things, which may have led to a different outcome. But what this story so clearly shows is a system at work as well. Even in the arrest of Jesus at the very beginning in the garden, here you have the Jewish religious authorities collaborating with Roman soldiers, which is such an interesting and damning moment, not against, you know, I know the ways in which this text has been read against Jewish identity. Right. And really, really painful and horrible ways. But I think what I'm pointing to in this is when the state and religious power brokers collaborate together to bring these two systems together, how many individual choice points can change the outcome? Yeah. Well, and how do the most vulnerable get caught in the middle? I really wrestle with the problem of anti-Semitism in this text and always how do we 
tell this story because reminding our people sort of over and over again that many of the players in these stories, including Jesus and the disciples, are Jewish. And so, um, you know, using the language of leaders or power broker really captures it, that that within this system, Pilate's a power broker um, and trying to hold on to his power and place. Um, He's not at the top. He's not at the bottom. He's got this piece of the pie. And then the power broker's or the Jewish elite or that faction of leadership in the temple um, also were trying to hold on to their own power and to survive in a system that is built to work against them, right? And it's built on the backs of their people. And so in this story, it feels like there's this sense of posturing and um, entrapment, like Pilate tries to trap the power brokers into doing the dirty work themselves. Um, he traps them by continuously referring to Jesus as the King of the Jews. Um, and then they sort of paint him into a corner back by reminding him that if he doesn't do his own due diligence, then he in fact is betraying the empire. And so I feel like in this back and forth of like power struggle of both sort of maintaining and holding each other accountable, Jesus is sacrificed in the middle of that process. And the other person who gets injured in this text is the slave of the high priest that Mm -hmm. Peter cuts the ear off of, which in my memory, I had always thought it was one of the priests. And my text says the slave of the high priest. To your point, Shauna, that's such an illustration to me of the most vulnerable being caught in the middle. Presumably this person was there against their will. And it's interesting to me that Peter chooses to strike against that person, Malchus. I want to say their name. Mm -hmm. Peter strikes against Malchus because was that the safest person that he could have gone after? Because he knows that if he would have killed a high priest or taken an ear of a high priest, that he would have probably been killed on the spot. I I think that there's something so revealing in that for us in this small moment of the story, for the larger Mm. moments of the story about the places of the system fighting within itself. A phrase that I found really striking within this passage, chapter 18, verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who had advised Mm -hmm. the Jews or Jewish leaders that it was better to have one person die for the people. Rather than like it would satisfy the powers that be rather than an entire people. Is that what you think that means? Yeah. Sounds like again, in the fear that what Jesus and, and his disciples and followers represent is a threat to the overall system, thinking about killing one person as a way to undermine the whole project. Yeah, that's, it's so funny because I read it out loud and I didn't really catch that on my way through. But what I think, like rereading it now, like going back and again, like it's part of how the author is making meaning, right? It's a parenthetical piece. And what I wonder is how, so one of the ways that I love to think about this story, especially when Pilate and Jesus are in this conversation and Pilate's like moving, right? Like inside and outside and inside and outside. And there's only way that 
like one way, like one reality that Pilot can comprehend. And it seems like there's only one reality that the Jewish leaders or the power brokers can comprehend. And so it makes it for sort of a zero sum game, right? Like either you're part of the power structures and you have role in that or you don't and you might as well die. And there's just like no in between and no other reality. And that the reason this is such a confusing exchange seems to me for Pilate is that Jesus doesn't buy that story. Like it's Jesus is like the one who says there's an alternative narrative here, right? Like there's another reality. There's a bigger truth than this reality that you're so deeply entrenched in and enmeshed in um, that you can't find your way out without someone dying. Like one of the things that struck me about this text when I preached it this season was that Pilate gives the crowd, acts as if the crowd of people gathered get a choice, right? And they're not, their choices are all death. <laughs> so the ways that the structure or the empire make us think that we have room to move or have agency are just sort of tricks around which of the t- terrible options do we want to choose, Someone was going to die that day. Three people were going to die. And the only choice that anybody really got to make was who was going to die. But it wasn't a choice between life and death. It was a choice between death and death. And I just think that that plays out over and over again when we get trapped in the belief that the empire is the only reality. And I think when they say that piece about it's better for one person to die than all of us, it's again another way that they only see the option of death. The question is, it's one or a multitude. Well, I think Pilate, in the conversation he has with Jesus, where Jesus is saying, maybe there's more to this story than, than the framework we're operating under, Pilate then says, what is truth? Yeah. And that's such a striking moment within the text of, yeah, what is truth? Well, part of what I think constitutes truth is what do you believe and what mm-hmm. do you think is true? And yeah. if you believe that the only way to gain power is to kill or put down this rebellion, whether you're the Roman Empire or the Jewish power brokers, then what is true is that someone has to die. Yeah. Yeah, that whole question of what is truth is that Pilate asks, and depending on how you hear those words, like, does he mean that in a sarcastic way or a mocking way, or does he have the unearnest moment in the middle of the growing chaos and clamor for death? And and so I'm really interested in when we read this, how we utter those words, that question. And then I also think it's important to remember that, like, the word truth has changed so much like the very nature of it is we imagine that it's this like unchanging ideal it's one certain thing but even how we think of that word and define it has changed so much over the centuries and that it wasn't that for Pilate in some ways the question is like what you were saying like what do I see right in front of me what do I know by looking at the world around me how can anything other than that be truth Yeah, and in this answer that Jesus gives, which is, my kingdom is not from this world, almost, which is 
space age Jesus. Almost what Jesus is saying is, again, there's more truth than meets the eye than what you can physically. Yeah. And what shapes what Pilate and the religious power brokers know is true is fear. And that yeah. fear of losing their place, fear of losing their life, fear of further oppression and marginalization like this. These are a traumatized people acting out of trauma. Sure. Every single yeah. person, I think. What it takes to be a yeah. runner holding down the occupation cannot be a fun job. That cannot I mean, be good. <laughs> I, I don't think that uh, they're winning in any awards is like, you know, top 500 companies to work for or anything. Right. Or even just being the, the brokers, right? Like between, because that's why I totally dig your language of power broker is that brokering the relationship between the occupation and the oppressive forces and the people, right? Like, cause that's where I feel like it's one thing to say, let's not be anti-Semitic because not all the bad actors in these stories are Jewish and not all of the Jewish actors in these stories are bad, but also to recognize that like, that there are folks who think they're doing the right best thing because it seems like the only viable option that saves the most amount of lives for the sake of their people, right? Like um, I'm thinking about the way we wrestle and maybe we, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the way we wrestle around action and movements in, in this country, right? And the constant sort of wrestling that we do with how radical of a movement do we create and how radical must the movement be and the, the ongoing debate within social justice work and racial justice work and queer justice work around um, the voices, between the voices that say um, we've got to be out in front and super radical and super inclusive and um, the sort of voices in the middle that say, well, we want to bridge and we don't want to be, take it too far. And I can think of like, you know, times I've been in those arguments and I have sometimes failed to see <laughs> the perspective of the most radical. And there are times I have failed to be able to see the perspective of those who are trying to create some type of bridge that I can't manage to imagine. Yeah. It brings up for me that we are destined to fail if our primary operation is fear. And from that place, limit who we can see and how we can see those around us or alternate voices. And we're destined to fail if we believe that the framework that we're currently working in or trapped in is the only framework that we have access to. Because it's different to change the frame, like change within the framework and reject the framework, right? And so I think we when we fail to see that we can reject the framework, whether that's an empire or a law or a committee structure or a political like swamp, then we can't see this alternative that Jesus is standing here, like silently offering with his body. Shauna, this makes me think we're ready to move to the second part of our practice, which is to read the text through again and to look for how this text calls us to resistance. And I want to pause. It's a long text. Do you feel like it's worth rereading yeah. or do you want to just go from what we know? 
I think for me, it would be helpful. It's so much. And I feel like I really am like, my brain is jumping around. Like it took me four weeks to cover all this ground in worship. It would be helpful to me if we do reread a portion of it, or if we like decide to like hone our focus um, in on like a portion. Do you think the kind of juiciest part for us is chapter 18, 12 through 40? Yep. John chapter 18, verses 12 through 40. So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they took him to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside at the gate. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it, warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Ananias sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They asked him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, the cock crowed. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. 
if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. In reading even this section of the text, how does this text call us to resistance? I'm really struck by how there seems to be almost a sense of spiraling out of control or like we're sort of crossing, you know, a bridge we can't come back from. For almost everyone in this text, um, even even Judas and Peter, but then especially Pilate and these Jewish power brokers. And then in contrast to that, Jesus's presence throughout this story and the way that, at least in the way that you read it just now, it feels like um, Jesus is so grounded and so present and even open. And I want to be really careful about that because I think in resistance work, we sometimes look to people who are sometimes in the most vulnerable position and then ask them to lead the way. Um, Or we put people in a position to constantly be pouring themselves out or offering their experiences and their wisdom and their expertise. Like, for example, I think we often ask people of color to teach white people like ourselves. So I want to be careful about that um, and lifting up an unhealthy outpouring or self-giving. But one of the things that strikes me so much about Jesus, even given that, is Jesus's like willingness remain completely present in this moment and even like be willing to be in what feels like an authentic conversation with Pilate and like Jesus's own life is literally at stake right his own safety his own humanity his all of these parts of him are at stake in this moment and yet it it makes me want to ask the question is that part of Jesus's model of resistance to be able to be so deeply grounded when the world seems to be on fire. Jesus does seem to be the only one in this narrative not operating from a place of fear. Yes. Even as he's facing a very terrifying possibility and probability of outcome. Right, right. If anyone should be afraid in this moment, it does feel as if Jesus is, is not fearful or fear is not the decider of his actions. Although there's moments in his conversations when he's being questioned where I kind of want to shake him a little bit and be like, say something Mm -hmm. to get yourself out of this. Talk yourself out of it. Make it easier on yourself, which is interesting to note for me as again, I think that's from my place of fear. Like, don't name your truth 
for the sake of getting yourself into further trouble. When we tackled the the Peter's denial story at my church, one of the things that we talked about was that Peter had the opportunity to pass, to blend into the crowd, um, convince people that he wasn't who they thought he was. And Jesus refuses to pass. <laughs> it's like for anything other than he is and that the tension in that of completely understanding where Peter's coming from and then also seeing this contrasting decision on Jesus's part to deny his own personal truth. The other piece I noticed in the text that came through so clearly in the second reading is back to your original comment about the intimacy of relationships. Mm-hmm but also the intimacy of actions. Like they're warming themselves by a fire. They're in somebody's Mm -hmm. home again. And I think there's something to that around the work of resistance because it's, I think we we hear resistance and we think about marching in the street or Mm -hmm. being in a big protest or locking yourself, like chaining yourself to a monument, which is important and valuable parts of resistance and protest. But I also see opportunities in these small moments to name truth mm-hmm. in a non-confrontational or oppositional way. Jesus isn't saying you're wrong for not knowing this already. He's just naming it in a way that yeah. builds relationship. Yeah, I think that that's, that's so interesting that like when Pilate steps outside his palace, it feels very public and that there's a lot of parts of the story that remind me of like public gatherings, right? And public protests and public um, actions. And then Pilate retreats back into the interior of his home and has these intimate back and forth conversations with Jesus, where it's like Jesus came over for dinner at Pilate's house, if you took away some some of the other pieces. Um, And that it feels as if Jesus is actually interested in what Pilate knows and doesn't know. In that moment when Pilate first says, who are you? And Jesus says, well, what have you heard about me? Inviting Pilate to like actually see him and into like a, an actual encounter. What would have been like for Peter to say the same thing? Are you one of the disciples? Mm-hmm. Like, what have you heard about the disciples? And to yeah. engage in a conversation around, like they're warming themselves by a fire. That's a, that's an intimate thing or of admitting vulnerability, like we're cold. We're kind of annoyed yeah. that we're out here in the middle of the damn night. What you're saying makes me think about the work, the in-between work, right? Like for Peter, it seemed like he felt like there were two options, either resort to violence, cut somebody's ear off, make the big public action proclamation, or hide. But yeah, I love that question. What if he had answered are you a disciple with a question back? Um, that there's the opportunity for that conversation sometimes that we don't always step into. That we think we have to like either go big or run away and hide. <laughs> and in this work of being bound up in systems, seeing mm-hmm. the conversation between Pilate and the religious power brokers of take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The authorities reply, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. 
the text the text notes that this is a joke. Pilot's kind of taunting them, like mm-hmm. you don't have the power to execute this man, and yet that's what you're calling for. Big public moments that you're so <clears throat> clearly enmeshed in the system that what it takes to break through is a big grand gesture and maybe it's those intimate one-on-one conversations that have the power to actually move beyond what we believe is true about the boundedness of the status quo well and i also think that um sometimes we don't know the power of those actions those intimate conversations or those moments where we speak our truth or let our truth speak for itself because that's sort of what I read Jesus is doing is letting his truth speak for itself in this moment and that we don't get to know the power of that in this moment and then you know you could make a case that we don't know the power of that for three more days or 300 more years or 3,000 more you know but that doesn't make it less powerful and so what does it mean in sort of the work of resistance to, to trust the truth that we either are living or speaking, even if it doesn't have the impact in the moment that we really long for? That's bringing up for me something that just reflecting on some of our heroes, people who've done incredible things for the work of social justice, the two people that came up immediately were Martin Luther King Jr. and and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, both people who Mm -hmm. did incredible works for social justice and the cause of civil rights. And the thing that we continue to repeat are the truths they named to us. That what, what resonates in our spirits long after the actions are over and the impact of the laws changed um, particularly in, in the case of civil rights, is, is ongoing. It's also the deepest truths that both named that continue to resonate and find new life and meaning in us as we're living our own lives that continue to call us to our sense of self and what we know is true. So I really I want to amplify the, what you're saying and underline what you're saying here around the power of our own words, which is both for the work of liberation and the power of our words around crucifying somebody, ultimately. Um, I heard that John Bell song, Don't Be Afraid, My Love is Stronger, My Love is Stronger Than Your Fear. Does that sound familiar? Do you know about that? I do, but I could not recite it to you. I bring it up because I just was thinking about how those, Again, people who true things that they say resonate and hold long over time and maybe even deepen in their meaning. But we wrestled with um, sort of the madness of the crowd this last week in, in worship. And I had people tell stories about crowds and different people had different stories. Some were really good and exciting. And some people had stories about being in the midst of a crowd when the mood and the power of the crowd changed. And then we read this text again and we ended and just ended worship with the word, ended that portion of worship with, you know, the crowd crying out for the crucifixion. Um, because that's sort of the place we were holding in the story. But then we sang this song 
Um, I think it's based on uh, the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, the don't be afraid. We just sang it over and over and over again. And that we sort of had that feeling of like needing to sing it. Don't be afraid. My love is stronger. My love is stronger than your fear. Um, over and over and over again until we could start to believe it and just hold that truth. And I think that that's, again, sort of that same idea of like, how do we hold something that we know and believe deeply that we're grounded in, like Jesus is grounded in this truth of God's kingdom and those possibilities, even when there's like all evidence to the contrary. Somehow we hold on to those. And maybe those are part of what fuel resistance. It feels to me like we're ready to move to the third section of our reading around liberation. Yeah. Is there any part of this text that would be helpful to you to work with, sit with, think through for what you have coming up with friendship or any other places in your work? Ah, that's interesting around liberation. So we're going to focus on Good Friday at Friendship about um, on the three Marys that are named here. One of my people wrote uh, Midrashas from each of those Mary's perspectives. Wow. Um, one of our goals in that is that we understand that part of the role of the church and of us to one another is in solidarity with grief and loss. Yeah. Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. After this, knowing that everything was already completed in order to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was nearby, so the soldier soaked a sponge in it, placed it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, It is completed. Bowing his head, he gave up his life. Thank you, Shana. As we narrowed in on this text, what vision for the work of liberation does this text offer? I just find this so beautiful in so many different ways. You know, like as a queer person, chosen family has become a huge part of my life and not just mine, but like my entire family's. This moment when Jesus, who is near death and sort of in trust, his mother to the care of someone that he loves. It's more than just a like, please watch after my mom. It's almost like an ordination, right? Like where there is a passing on of of a role. You um, are now the child of this woman and you are now the mother of this child, this son. And I just think that is so beautiful. And it reminds me how much community and building familial relationships and remembering that we are not alone is so important to the work of liberation. 
that we cannot possibly do it by ourselves and that doing it together rooted in deep relationship with one another is just so much more holistic. Something that really struck me in in this section of the reading is when Jesus says that he's thirsty, they had a jar of wine and give some to him. This work of liberation must be embodied. It must be felt. It must be attentive to all kinds of our needs claiming thirst and vulnerability of thirst, even as he's dying. It's like, and a little bit of pleasure, even. It's like, I want just one sip of this. Uh, Maybe it wasn't Mm -hmm. the most delicious wine he'd ever had, but I think sometimes our visions around resistance work in particular are that we must deny Mm -hmm. ourselves, that we must fight, 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 and never notice pleasure or the needs of our bodies. And to me... As you're saying around this holistic sense of liberation, part of that is also sharing in wine with those who are gathered with us. Yeah, I love that. I love that in this, like, such, I mean, this is a long part of the story. Like, the Gospel of John takes so much time with the entire events of Jesus' death and crucifixion. But these short verses so much unfolds. Jesus takes care of the people that he loves and confronts the reality that that's a necessary part of dying and also takes care of himself in that way that you're naming um, and tells the truth about the experience, right? Like confronts the reality with words and actions. And, and I can't imagine like what it felt like to be the disciples in that moment, right? We don't know it in every text, a little bit different group of people are named, but that there are people who love Jesus deeply who didn't abandon him at any point in this journey. And I think that um, back to that, the theme of failure, how deep this must have felt as a sense of ultimate failure in this moment for, for those that love Jesus and bore witness to it. And yet they didn't abandon one another. A sense of failure of we don't, have the power to stop this or we didn't have the power to stop this even even by denying jesus it didn't make his case any better for peter maybe that's part of what he was trying to do yet the willingness to stick it through even when things are seemingly crashing down around them and failing is something for me to really hold for myself that it's the work of liberation is not always a sense of winning. Yeah. And I wonder in my own self, like where that is my own whiteness and privilege that even tells me that story, right? Like that there should always be impact that I can measure or that I can see that we've moved the needle or made a difference. And that that there have been people who in this world and who've walked alongside and sat with and embodied these women and Jesus in this moment in terms of being able to hold space for what is hard and what is not going to get better in 24 hours or overnight and how important and how wise that work is. Yes. And in that, Jesus reminds us that there are things beyond this world. 
if we're always seeking to measure an outcome or success by a particular metric, we're speaking within a flat frame and we're not seeing the true dimensions of the seeds we plant that bear fruit generations down the line. The generation that will resonate, maybe not in our lifetime, but in the lifetime of our children's children. Yeah. And how important it is to hear the stories of the people right in front of you. We keep coming back to the intimate piece throughout these stories. It's, I think, easy in the work of resistance to begin to adapt a meta-narrative. Um, and those are really important and helpful, right? Because they, bring, they can bring along whole communities of people. But you often don't know, like, who's lost a mother or a brother right in front of you um, if you don't dig into the story. And that that also makes the work take longer than just sweeping generalities do. Another song that I've sung in worship practice around kind of chanting almost is it repeats what we need is here. And we just sing it over and over again until we begin to believe it, that what we need is here. Mm, mm, I love that. And I've been reflecting on that so much lately in the work of liberation and resistance. How am I not seeing what I need is here or what we, the community needs here. And Jesus Jesus says, look, here is my mother. Here is a beloved disciple. What we need is here is this family. Mm. I need something to drink. Well, here is this wine. I will drink it. I believe there is a call to look at the right now. We talk so much in our theology work of the already and the not yet. And it's so tempting for me to look at the not yet, like this vision of a kingdom of God, a kingdom of God that is going to be heaven on earth and to really like forget the already. Yep. Yep. I think that's true when we don't think about our spirituality as like the piece that grounds us and makes us capable of uh, true presence and showing up. And instead we sort of like spiritualize the whole process <laughs> and so that we can escape it. You know, I think that it are, is two ways that we um, as religious folk can rely on spirituality, you know, differently. Shana, now it's time for the altar call. I mean, oh, to, oh, good. You know, I love of, an altar call. <laughs> um, as we hold this vision of liberation and work of resistance, what is one thing that you will carry with you from this conversation in your work in ministry? I think for me, I I want to carry with me this awareness that I'm often working in systems that I can't easily see and to stop and ask questions about how I understand what actual choices that I have or the communities that I work with have. How often am I caught up in, in a system and I am not even aware of it. And so I couldn't possibly be working for liberation. (laughs) 
if I'm not even aware and that that takes like time and attention and centering voices that are different than my own and listening um, for ways that people are impacted that I should be paying more attention to. And to also tell the truth about the ways that systems impact me instead of like Peter trying to talk my way out of being impacted, you know. I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's not a very theological answer. I just am so struck by our conversation, how often I am operating within a system and potentially even helping to uphold it. And I don't always realize it. Mm, that feels pretty theological to me. <laughs> I'm going to take with me the awareness of the in-between moments mm. of the chance to jump the tracks of the system sometimes or shift the tracks of the system and the opportunities that I may have in those that I don't recognize what we need is here. What we need is this conversation right here, not necessarily just the thing that's happening, you know, the, the planned thing that's going to happen and slowing down and, looking at times I may be warming myself by the fire and avoiding something because I'm afraid. And when I feel called to name the truth that I know in a way that builds relationship. Yeah, I love that image of noticing when we're by the fire, even if avoiding something is what got us there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's like, well, I tried to dodge this, but now I'm here. (laughs) Right. And I might as well enjoy this warm fire and talk to this fellow over here. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, Shauna, thank you so much for taking time in in the lead up to this Holy Week to have a holy conversation with me. I'm so grateful for the ways that you help us notice the positive and negative space in our lives through your art and creativity. Mm, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us, and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterian, MLP.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.